Hello, welcome to another episode of A Grand Reflection, where again, we are talking about death and acceptance. Uh, thank you for going on this journey with me. I really didn't expect it to be this long, but I think that it's coming to a good conclusion now. So um, yeah, thanks, thanks for being here. And uh, the game plan is to sort of contaminate my own story and look back on a lot of things that have happened in my own life in regards to um, all the stuff that we talked about, uh, contamination, obviously, and then uh, gender, uh, capitalism, uh, death, all this sort of stuff, and really kind of just bring it all together because in this case, there is so much that is um, that I have a personal stake in. And if I'm honest, that's probably where all this came from in the first place. That's where I got the interest in entering into these cycles and these seasons and these sort of um, underground areas, these modes of thinking that we don't tend to usually pay attention to. And so I guess we'll just get into it. Um, we talked about it before a little bit. I talked about the blood bacteria that I had and uh, during that time how... Um, my girlfriend at the time cheated on me and, and all that kind of stuff. But uh, I want to pick up after that, um, my senior year of high school, which was a really weird time because uh, I wasn't in all the same classes anymore as all my friends. And, um, you know, there was so much doing around all those friendships because we we're all in these honors and AP classes. We'd have study groups and... Um, we all had the same teachers and all this kind of stuff. And so it wasn't anything that was willful or on purpose. I wasn't cast out intentionally, but there was this distance all of a sudden between all these people that I was once really close with. Uh, there wasn't as much that I could relate. Um, you know, my, my class syllabi were so different and, um, there's kind of this sad realization that really I didn't know too much about them. I, I just, you know, we always had the context of that thing that we were working towards or that focus that we had, uh, which was the academics. And so um, th th this was kind of another haunting, I think, where the hallways felt really weird. I would hear echoes of conversations that I half understood, but, but didn't quite anymore. And I didn't really have room to to feel like I could enter into those but they were around me all the time nonetheless and um, it was about this time that I got two new friends I didn't really gain a lot of friends that senior year of high school but there were two one of them uh, her name was Kat and she was a friend that I already had uh, through the context of Kim but she kind of kind of took my side on the breakup and uh, decided that uh, it, it made more sense if she could only be friends with one of us to be friends with me. And um, obviously, I, I think that that's typecasting. Um, I don't think she stopped being friends with Ken in any sense, but she was hanging out with me more. And um, there was this interesting kind of blurred line. We dated for a little bit and uh, that kind of faded out. Uh, she seemed really only interested in a friendship, but uh, th that was a little bit of a, 
a renewed sense of hope, I think, because I, I had this idea that uh, every everything that I thought was going to happen for the future was was just gone. That um, that life had become scarce, and there was no um, no no way forward really. And so, in a weird way, that was really hopeful that that maybe new new forms could arise, and uh, maybe it just a different way of being than what I had before. I, I couldn't go back to what I was before, but I, I, maybe there was a future, maybe there was something else that I could do. And another person that really helped that was Spooky. And I, I mentioned Spooky before. They are such an interesting person. They really get into the depths of the underworld, I think is the best way to put it. And because of that, it was a lot easier to be their friend. Um, and often me and Spooky and Cat would all hang out together. And and that was kind of a, a nice little settling into um, that felt really good. But other than that, there there wasn't a lot that I remember of senior year. Uh, all of a sudden, I was just trying to skate by. I, d I didn't feel like I had access to achievement. Um, I could see my GPA failing, and um, there was a new new standard for what was acceptable, which was... Uh, I need to just pass. I need to get through this. Um, rather than I need to be amazing and be above average, uh, which is such an interesting thing. You know, we I, I was never below average. I was getting C's, and, and we call C average. And it's so weird how much we ingrain into each other um, with these systems and these structures that average isn't okay, that, that somehow we have to be extraordinary, somehow we have to strive for more than just okay just good or good enough um that this idea of perfection mixed with this idea of constant striving uh really creates some deep wounds when you don't have access to um that sort of a category i remember thinking uh before that like oh i gotta be on this well well how do i do better how do I how do I make this even better than it was, and how do I strive for more? Um, I remember that too with sports. I remember it wasn't good enough to have made the team. You know, you had to be first string, and it wasn't good enough to be first string. You had to win all the time, and uh, everything was in competition like that. And it's just such a strange, strange place to be. But anyway, um, senior year was a little bit more freed from all that. I wasn't doing sports anymore. I uh, had no way at all to get the 4.0, and I was already out of honors classes because I couldn't keep up. And it was more of just a struggle of not really being understood. I think that there is some shame involved here, too, because there was these fears that maybe people wouldn't believe me now because I was always a little, um, a little bit irresponsible. Uh, I didn't always make that A mark. And, and so maybe I um, don't deserve what's being handed to me, the, the break that I'm getting, because some of it is because of the illness, but some of it is because that's just who I am. Um, I'm not enough. And, and that was something that I internalized a lot, and I felt it even more so because um, I had these teachers that... Uh, didn't quite understand what was going on. It, you know, the, the chronic fatigue that I had in the wake of this blood bacteria, because um, it was only for a short while that the blood bacteria was in my system, uh, 
And that was understandable, right? That's a contamination and you're getting rid of it. You're taking care of it. You're doing antibiotics. But once I was like, quote unquote, pure again, there was no excuse anymore. And it was like, okay, well, you've had your, your uh, recovery and you've uh, gone through the fix. So n- now you need to be back on track. And I, I couldn't. I, I, <laughs> I had so little energy. There were days where I could barely get out of bed. And um, most, most of my teachers just didn't see that. There was one teacher, though, that really did. And I think it's because he was my math teacher junior year, and then I just happened to get him again senior year. Um, and he could see the difference. He could tell like, oh, this, this kid's not the same. Um, he's not just being lazy or tired. There is something else going on. And he gave me so, so many breaks, except they weren't really breaks. I still had to do all the work. It was just at a different pace. You know, it was like, um, oh, you don't have your homework yet. Well, get it to me next week. Um, oh, you're, uh, you're not understanding this concept because you were too tired during the class. Well, we'll come to me after class and we'll figure it out. And that was such a relief for me. And I, I'm not sure I would have been able to get through senior year without uh, that teacher. He was, he was just so amazing that way and, and so different of a response, which, which was to say, like, rather than suck it up, work harder, do harder, uh, he was seeing who I was, where I was at, and, and what my needs were. And um, he tended to do that with everybody, I think. And his class had, uh, you know, people would joke about his class being like, quote unquote, easy, uh, as if that were somehow a bad thing. But I think we all learned the math. <laughs> I mean, that's the that's the funny thing about it all. But uh, anyway, um, you know, fast forward and we get to senior year or, or the end of senior year. Sorry, we've been in senior year the whole time. What I mean is we get to the end of senior year where they do this thing called senior uh, sunset. And they did a senior sunrise that was kind of this uh, ritual cycle thing. Um, I thought it was really cool where we kind of set our intentions for the year and started thinking about the future a little bit and and just took some time with that. And um, so so the, the other end of that was senior sunset, which was just before we graduate. And we go out to the football fields and everybody gets a candle and um, we all light each other's candles. You know, it's like one flame. Uh, you know, we're all one class. And we um, are supposed to just kind of sit there and just contemplate like what we're losing as well as what we're gaining. Um, that that like this is a chapter of our lives coming to a close. And, and the whole idea was to let the candles kind of slowly burn out as uh, sunset hits and darkness descends upon us. Uh, it was really uh, symbolic and, and meaningful and metaphorical. And I, I loved it at the time, especially because you know, that's where I was at anyway. I like, I wanted to contemplate things. I wanted to try to understand and grapple with like what had happened to me. And I was so grateful for the opportunity to have this time of reflection. And then, um, (laughs) what happened was, and you know, they're kids. So like, you know, we're all 17 and we don't, we don't know what we're doing. And, um, so all of my uh, classmates, not all of them, but most of them, uh, got bored with the thing before sunset even hit and left. Uh, thought it was a stupid thing that was just required of us. And um, 
the reason they left was because uh, somebody had hired as part of the whole ceremony was like, after you do this whole thing, then we enter into the celebration where we go to um, uh, inside and there's a DJ and we can all have this party and have some fun. And uh, nobody wanted to wait until sunset. So everybody went in there early, except for a few of us. I remember Spooky was there and uh, I think Kat was there too and a few others, uh, this girl named Sarah, who's a mutual friend, and we all had this really sacred moment of reflection and going like, you know, I might not see all you guys again. This might be the last time we're all together, and um, it's been good, and it's been weird and different, but um, there's a sense of gratitude as well as a sober-mindedness. And so we did that, and then sun, sunset hit, and then we kind of gradually faded out of, of it, and we're like, okay, let's go and uh, see what everybody else is doing. And so we go in there, and the party's already dying down because everybody got bored of it. And uh, apparently one of the uh, one of the kids, um, his parents were out of town or something, and so he, he's like, hey, we're all going to, we're going to head over to so-and-so's house, and uh, we're going to, uh, have this big after party that should be the real party. And um, I don't know who all went and who didn't, but I, I, I remember going home at that time thinking, like, I don't have energy for that. I have no desire to take part in that. And uh, really, if I look back on it, it's it's really similar to the way we treat uh, these holidays that I was talking about, where we're so eager to get to the joy of Christmas and we're so eager to go so fast with it all to to get away from the 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 darkness to get away from the sadness the um the contemplation and the 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 feelings uh that we don't like that feel uncomfortable um that that we just totally uh like remove this patterning that's that's helpful and healthy and just jump the gun and go straight to try to get to the joy and the happiness and the up of life and i think that that's something that never really works and you know if I'm looking at this where people were going to that party already it was dissatisfying because they hadn't gone through the rest and the irony is um if we'd been given a chance I think that we would have really enjoyed the party if it had gone in its natural rhythm uh we would have enjoyed being in there and and celebrating alongside the grief and alongside the sadness because we'd given that sadness room um I, I think those things are more kind of a, uh, you, you can't really have one without the other. I think our capacity for grief um, raises our capacity for joy. And so going into college, I, I felt like I had this renewed sense of hope because all of a sudden, um, all the stuff that I was feeling that I'd never really been given permission for I'd given myself permission. I couldn't help but give myself permission because, you know, you have to process uh, when these big things happen. But because it was so separate before, there was this notion of the future that feel that that, that felt so unattainable because I couldn't, I couldn't get to it. Like I, I knew that the image was too perfect, and that I would never be able to to reach that. Not not with how my body was. And, and not with um, the things that I had experienced. I felt uh, contaminated. I felt uh, tainted. I felt um, unworthy. 
And weirdly, by allowing that room for the grief, it let me do the reverse process. It let me contaminate my, my notions of the future with sort of a, a tempered, realistic expectation that the, the joy and the sadness are going to kind of go hand in hand. And um, so that, that really allowed me to move forward and to be okay with, okay, I'm going to community college. I'm not going to university like these other people are. That's fine. Okay, um, maybe I can't be a doctor. That's too much. Um, that would be too much work, and my body's just not up for it. But uh, I could be a biologist. And so maybe something like that. And um, I started getting inventive uh, and looking to the future again and looking for ways forward. And I think that, that the reason I could do that was because of being given that time of grief where I could grieve with others and feel like I wasn't alone in this part of life, this experience of life, that, that maybe this is just something normal that everybody has and um, I'm not lacking because this thing happened to me. And so ironically, by having the future become more of a focus again, I was able to enjoy the present more. And what I mean by that is, instead of the future as seeming like this thing that is unattainable, this scarce thing, that like there's this one narrow path to be able to get to where you need to go. And um, if you don't make that path happen, then you're going to miss out on your future, that um, that there's so little availability for things to go right. Um, instead, looking at it as this wide open thing of, of multiple pathways, multiple ways forward, where anything could happen, um, it kind of took the pressure off it. And what that allowed me to do is to focus on the present a little more, to allow myself to not take myself so seriously, and to... Um, Weirdly, to, to step into a bit of that fun that some of my classmates were experiencing during graduation, that this idea of, of the future being wide open and this idea of um, having some fun. And, and with that, I don't know whose idea it was, uh, whether it was mine or Spookies or Cats, uh, but somehow we decided that we would go see a live viewing of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Now, if you're not familiar with the Rocky Horror Picture Show, it is a wild cult classic movie about uh, transsexual transvestites from Transylvania <laughs> is the uh, the little tagline. But uh, it's, it's wacky. It's like part horror film, part sex positive, uh, part sci-fi comedy, I guess. Um, there's nothing like it, but I knew about it because my parents used to be big fans of it. And I think they'd even seen a few shows. Um, in fact, I should probably ask my mom a little bit more about that and see if I could eke a story out of it. But, uh, so I know, I knew about it and there's this big showing live showing that, uh, was coming to Reno. And so, uh, I kind of vouched for it. I, I don't know if it was my original idea or if I was just showing eagerness and and got other people excited about it. I'm, I'm not sure which way it went but either way me and spooky and cat all decided to go along with a few other friends and uh, me and spooky didn't really have any sort of uh way to dress up because we just had our normal like heteronormative guy clothes but cat had a pretty eclectic um uh 
set of clothing that she could use is she had a surplus um, because she kind of liked to do a few sort of cosplay stuff, uh, a few uh, dressing up as characters, and uh, especially like Renaissance stuff. And so we decided to use that, like uh, the the extra lace and bodices and stuff like that to uh, dress up, as well as uh, make use of her makeup. In fact, she did the makeup for all of us because we had no clue how to use makeup. And so it was this weird, interesting um, thing right here at the first bit of college where we go to this wild event with hundreds and hundreds of people all there to do the same thing, all dressed up. I, I don't think I saw anybody who wasn't. It was crazy. And uh, there's sort of this audience participation that goes on with these live events where people are like squ doing squirt guns, putting extra lines in. Uh, shouting at characters, throwing toilet paper. It, uh, it's just so much fun. And it's so crazy. And everybody is acting so crazy that you feel this kind of absolute freedom to just be however you want. Um, and I remember that was like the coolest thing. And, and it was just like this one little moment, but uh, being able to not have to worry about any of the normal norms and and to just like for a moment explore what i want to do rather than what everybody thinks i should do and yeah that was super amazing and super countercultural in a, a weird way it's it's really kind of wild that this thing is a cult classic that there's that many people that are familiar with it and that many people that uh that like it that, <laughs> that enjoy it um yeah And I think for this next part to make sense, I'm going to have to meander backwards a little bit. But I was living at home at the time when I first started college. Um, I didn't move out immediately like most people did. And um, after about a year of that, it got to this feeling where I, I felt like I needed more, like I wanted to branch out, like I wanted to um, establish myself on my own and all that sort of stuff. And I think some of that actually did have to do with my dad. And and don't get me wrong, my dad was amazing. Um, he was handed very little and did a lot with it. But um, in some ways, he was really tied to those um, masculine norms that were received. Uh, all growing up, um, he didn't go to church. And, and a lot of that had to do with shame. I think he felt like he wasn't good enough. Um, felt like... Uh, if he were to walk into church, I think he actually told my mom this literally that he was afraid that he would like catch fire or something if he like walked through the threshold and into the sanctuary. Um, and obviously he was joking, only kind of half joking though. Um, there's more of that hellfire stuff, I guess. That, that does kind of recur. But he um, instead, instead of going to church with us, he would watch racing or uh, football or whatever sports were in season. And it was really interesting because for me, um, yeah, I really admired him and, and I wanted to walk in his footsteps and I wanted to do well by him and, um, you know, his only son. <laughs> so I felt this kind of weight and I, I still do feel this weight a lot um, even today is of uh, his legacy and, and what am I leaving behind after him and uh, how am I not letting all those sacrifices he made go to waste? But 
because of that, I, I was really interested in um, connecting with him. And there was a lot of really good ways that we connected. But one of the best ways that we connected um, was not so much with sports. Uh, we would talk about that stuff, but it didn't seem, uh, there wasn't a depth to it. it. It was kind of a talking about the statistics or, um, you know, the, the, the standard like water cooler talk, uh, so-and-so is doing well this year, all that kind of stuff. But the thing that we really, really connected with was motorsports and racing. And that was something my dad absolutely loved. And you could tell the difference too. Uh, there was a different level of depth compared to the sports, uh, where he was, um, rooting for super unknowns and watching all sorts of different, uh, different types of racing, everything from Formula One to NASCAR to, uh, like off-road stuff like rally racing and just, um, motorsports in general were just kind of his thing. And I stepped into that too. And I absolutely loved that. And I still love that, but, um, uh, we really connected through go-karting and go-karting had a different flavor to it. Um, because there, there was a certain sense of competition but the competition was a lot more infinite. Uh, I talked about this in the creativity episode where it's um, an infinite game where you don't try to uh, get the gold necessarily. It's not about that. I mean, if you do, that's cool and you can be excited about that. But you can also be excited for the other person that got the gold, for the achievement that they had. And everybody feels kind of like they're in it together. If somebody figures out a new trick on the track, uh, they don't keep it to themselves. They tell everybody. And in fact, the only people that would keep to themselves, uh, one, uh, would kind of get left behind because there's all this sharing going on and uh, everybody learns each other's tips. But, you know, when you don't form that relationship, if you're in it kind of by yourself, you don't, <laughs> you know, nobody comes up to you and you don't hear the tips. And uh, and besides that, you know, everybody kind of looks down on you if you're, if you're not part of the community, if you're not actually getting in there and making relationships with one another in the pits. And that was one of the coolest parts about the go-karting. We were on such a low budget, but there were so many people that always were willing to help us in a pinch. Um, I remember times when we would come rushing with the cart on a stand in between races because like a wreck happened or some part failed and you'd get this big crowd of people coming around and everybody would be like, what can I do? Oh, I got this thing. Let me run to my trailer real quick and we'll figure it out. And it was never... There was never a scarcity about it. It was always like we could always become more with each other. And, and it was about the pure love of the sport and like what absolute limits could you truly reach. And um, I think that that really is the heart of motorsports. Um, if you look at stuff like uh, Formula One, it's the absolute pinnacle of the most you could possibly eke out of it. Um, in fact, we got a lot of fuel efficiency standards because of stuff like that. Um, aerodynamics and uh, car safety a lot of that stuff comes from racing because it starts out with the passion and then it goes into the everyday. But, um, so, so that was kind of an exception to this, but, but there was a lot with my dad where I, I kind of always got the sense that he was, um, playing a role because he didn't know what else to play. And, and not that that makes it completely false. I, I don't think it does. Um, but, it always had the feel more, um, motorsports felt like a passion, but when he was doing something like watching football or something like that, it felt more like research. Like he wasn't really enjoying it in the moment, maybe a little bit, but it was more about 
how he could use that to connect with other people, um, to connect with his, uh, with his buds, you know. But this was also one of the reasons I got into sports was because I wanted to be able to connect with all these people that were so deeply entrenched in it. And it seemed to be all they talk about. And I wanted to also make my dad proud because that was like, that was the, uh, for lack of a better word, the manly thing to do was to, to play the sports and to conquer, right? To, to, to win, to be the best. And in some ways, I was able to do that through high school. I, I made the uh, JV basketball team my freshman year, and I was also uh, in football, which I actually, uh, to my shame at the time, I felt so inadequate. I actually didn't know all the rules until I started playing. And um, I remember feeling so validated by everybody really by being in that sport but the truth of it was was I never loved it especially not the football um I loved the sport but I hated playing it I hated being on the team and I hated the coach uh telling us that we weren't enough that we had to work harder telling us to always push it and to be more than what we were uh I don't and and it's not that I didn't like getting my my skills down or we're figuring out how to become better, but it was this motivation through fear and through lack and through shame. And um, I didn't go back after freshman year because of that. And I think a lot of that had to do with the coach. If there was a different coach, I, I would have liked it more, um, like I did basketball. And so sports were a big way that I could both connect with my dad and kind of be one of the guys, be like in the in-group um, and feel worthy. And so then all of a sudden I have this uh, bacteria that went through my system and I can't play sports anymore. I, I, I'm too tired. And this identity that I had built up through high school, all of a sudden, um, I felt like less of a man. And it was difficult because I'm living at home with my dad and he's watching all these sports and that's the mode that he's um, interacting with a lot of his friends in, and I can't really connect with that. Um, and even worse than that, there's this other side where, um, he had a lot of, of trauma as a kid, a lot of things that he checked out on, um, that he kept to himself because, uh, well, <laughs> because there's that image of, uh, manhood as being the head of the household, being the one that takes care of everybody, the one that has it together, the leader. And, um, you can't show weakness when you're a leader. And, and so I, I don't think he ever felt like it was okay to let us know what was going through his head unless it was something positive. And so he had all this undealt with trauma that he self-medicated with, which I don't blame him for. I mean, it's a way to survive, honestly. I, I think there's too often where we look at these addictions that people have as like some sort of horrible moral failing, but I don't think that's the case. I think it's more, um, it's a means of survival. It's a, it's, I need a way out of this and this is something less than adequate, but at least it's something. Um, so we're going to go for it. And r really the more I look at it, the more I recognize that addiction is really, um, a symptom of something else going on. It's not a thing by itself. So my dad, 
uh, he had a few addictions going on. Mainly, uh, the big one was alcohol. And there would always be these cycles uh, that would happen as where like he would uh, he would drink a lot, and then uh, he would get help, and then um, he would be clean for a while, and then it'd kind of slowly ramp up again. You know, maybe a drink here or there, just on special occasions, and then maybe just on the weekends, and then just in evenings, and then a couple times in the evening, and then it'd spiral out of control again, and then he'd go get help, and then he'd come back. And um, I grew up with this a lot. And he was in the middle of another one of those uh, downward spirals while I was heading off to college. And a lot of that reason had to do with the uh, 2008 recession. He lost his job as an architect, um, yeah, just architecture that people weren't building, uh, <laughs> during that time. And, uh, he couldn't find another one and, uh, or another job as an architect at least. And he ended up having to work at a grocery store, but he, um, I think that that hit him really hard. He had a good year there where he was not, um, not doing well at all. He spiraled into the drinking, and he uh, checked out a lot. And I, I think a lot of that had to do with he felt like he was a failure, like he wasn't the man that he should have been. Um, there's this undue pressure that, uh, you know, that society tells you this is what you have to be as a man. And it doesn't matter what sort of circumstances cause you to not be that. If you're not that, then you're somehow less of a man. And... Uh, I don't think that's how I saw him at that time. I didn't see him as less, but it was hard to be around uh, in these checking out spirals. And um, and of course, it's not black and white. Like there, like it's not like he was just always drunk or, or always checked out. Uh, there was a lot of good there too, but it, it was enough to make me kind of want to spend some distance and, and do my own thing. And so uh, that, that that's kind of another another piece in there. Now, Kat was in a unique spot as far as a living situation goes because her mom had died about a year earlier from cancer and her dad um, had gotten remarried very recently and uh, moved to live with his wife, his new wife. And so there's this house that uh, Kat grew up in and... Um, they couldn't really sell it because it, it wasn't exactly up to code. There was a lot of work that had to be done on the house before they could like legally hand it off to somebody else. And so we kind of ran around this idea that, you know, uh, we could just rent it out to the three of us, to, to me and uh, Spooky and Cat, and we could all live together. And we'd get cheap rent. Her dad would uh, get a little bit back from the loss of not being able to sell this place. And uh, everybody could be happy. So that was kind of the plan at first. Um, but meanwhile, uh, me and Kat, not so much Spooky. Uh, spooky had kind of a, a different belief system. But uh, me and Kat had grown up in the church, and we were kind of looking for a new way forward with our faith. And we had started going to this thing called InterVarsity, which is this uh, sort of para... They call it a parachurch group, which is like you... Um, you don't have a denomination. There's a lot of room for uh, people of different beliefs within Christianity to kind of come together 
and sort of have a place to uh, make a community and all that kind of stuff. Uh, there's probably some pros and cons to that. Uh, I definitely saw both sides. Uh, one, it was really nice to be involved with the club and, and have people around you that had common interests. But two, it also did create a little bit of a sense that you were the holdouts there on campus. Uh, there's this tremendous weight of like, oh, there's all these unsaved people out here and we, we've got to save them. Um, and with that, there's especially this uh, one group of uh, well boys, really, because they're just college age, you know, they're not, <laughs> they're still really young. Uh, they called themselves men, um, you know, because you got to be manly and you got to be strong and uh, courageous. And uh, they had this house. And the idea was um, it's this old Victorian home and it kind of looks like a frat house. And to be honest, it kind of acts like a frat house in a lot of ways. But the, the idea is uh, to be close to the campus um, and be immersed in the college experience without doing all those, uh, you know, quote unquote, sinful things uh, that, um, that happen with like dorm living and uh, frat houses and all that kind of stuff. To not get involved with the ways of the world, but be kind of in it. And the reason they did this was because there was, uh, especially within the InterVarsity group, a ton of women leaders and not men leaders. And they felt like that was something that needed to change. That like, there was nothing wrong with the women leaders because somebody needs to step up, nothing's going on, but it should be the men that are leading. And so uh, these few men's, the men that are involved in this group take charge and they're like, yeah, we're going to bring up leaders so that there'll be more men around to... Uh, to ensure the uh, health and uh, prosperity of this uh, community that we're forming. And so that was kind of the idea. And I, through InterVarsity, got to know a lot of guys that were living in this house. And um, I'm talking to one of them and, you know, I'm telling him about kind of this really cool thing that happened where, like, I want to move out and I don't have a lot of cash. I don't have a lot of ways to make normal rent situations happen, but there's this cool situation. Um, and it's with people that I like and I care about. And, um, his response was like, well, weren't you dating her before? Uh, you know, are you sure it would be wise to move in? And, you know, and I, I hadn't really even thought about it before then because I was just, oh, these are my friends. Uh, of course I want to move in with them. Um, but under that framework and under the stuff that I, had grew up with of these uh, gender norms and these ideas of uh, barriers that you should create and, and ways that you should keep yourself safe, um, ensure the purity of both parties for marriage and all that kind of stuff was like, oh yeah, no, you make a good point. And he said, well, you know, I know you're wanting to move out. We have an extra space at this, uh, this house. Uh, why don't you interview? Um, yeah, we'll set up a, you can come up to the next house meeting and, uh, we will see if you're a good fit. And at the time, I thought, wow, this is amazing because these guys are super intentional. And I don't feel like I'm that way with my faith necessarily. I mean, it feels genuine at this point because I kind of reassessed it and tried to, tried to re-understand it. But um, yeah, I feel like, oh, they're, ne they're never going to let me in uh, because uh, those are the real men. And, and I've kind of missed out on that at this point. Like uh, that, that's not something that can really be, I'm, I'm on the margins. And, uh, so I, I, I interview and they say, yeah, we'd love to have you in. 
Um, you know, in fact, you can move in next week if you like. Now, the problem was at this point, uh, I was already going to be moving in with uh, Spooky and Cat, and we had already created a, a date for that. We we had said we were going to do it the week after, and so uh, with only a week's notice. I basically tell them, hey, I can't move in with you guys. I don't think it's wise to. I don't think I should. And I move into this, um, essentially this Christian frat house instead. And uh, it's a really interesting time because um, I, my intention was to create distance from Kat. And um, in a lot of ways that really didn't work because we were still really close friends and uh, we were doing a lot of things together. We had a lot of uh, the same rhythms and stuff. Um, she was one of the people, um, along with Spooky, that I would see on the college campus, uh, the, the community college campus, that is. Um, and uh, in a lot of ways, it was a lot more connected to them than like this big campus experience because uh, the thing was is there wasn't an university for, well, there was after we sort of made one, but there wasn't an university community college chapter. It was just the main university. So all of a sudden I'm moving to this main university and kind of like being in with all these people that are having this experience of life that I'm not having at all. Um, they're high paced, uh, you know, always decked out on caffeine. Although to be fair, I was always decked out on caffeine, but that was mostly just to have like a baseline that felt somewhat normal <laughs> um and uh yeah i'm always going off to drive 20 minutes to community college even though i live uh you know two minute walk from campus and to top it off which was kind of a weird just circumstantial thing was the room that they had available was um this room that was in the basement with its own separate door there was there's only i think two or three rooms through that entrance. And so uh, I had kind of this isolated existence. And, and this was just something that I was already a little used to because um, because of my senior year of high school. But this I, this idea of um, like in and out and feeling not quite in, but but sort of, like enough that I could be passable. You know, like if somebody says, oh, you live at the 10th Street house, I'd be like, oh yeah, of course I do. But never really feeling like I was in and like one of the guys there. Uh, and I think that that, was compounded too, um, because I turned 21 when I was there. And uh, there was another guy in the house that turned 21 when I had, or about a month difference. And they threw this huge party for him because they, they knew that he was, and it was like this huge, you know, it felt like this big rite of passage thing. Um, but because they didn't know me and they didn't know that I had <laughs> uh, my birthday, um, I spent it alone. And, and I spent it, uh, I, I remember walking down to the corner store and getting um, getting some peppermint schnapps and putting in a hot chocolate. And that was my uh, 20, 21st birthday drink. And I remember at the time thinking like, this was it, this, this, this alcohol stuff, this is what like I've been waiting for or like people have been waiting for like this is supposed to be like a, a big deal thing. Like what, what is this? Like, it doesn't even like, okay, I feel buzzed and inebriated. Like I don't feel quite myself, but I just feel kind of numb. Is, is that what it's about? You know, is, is it about numbing? Uh, or, or is it about, you know, am I missing out on some, something different here? And, uh, 
I guess that was kind of a relief too, because, um, you know, alcoholism, alcoholism runs in the family. And I was, I was like, am I just going to be addicted to this stuff? Uh, it felt kind of good to be like, uh, no, this, this is not something I'm really interested in. But a lot of guys in that house seemed to be interested. So there's a lot of times that I remember faking it. Um, and there's a lot of times of faking it. Uh, some more than others. Uh, there was a lot of talking about uh, theology and uh, diving deep into literature, especially Christian literature, obviously, but uh, having these big conversations about them. But the, amidst all that would always be um, drinking hard alcohol, but like in a quote-unquote refined way, you know, it would be like, uh, oh, I got this 10-year-old whatever, and uh, I'm only having small sips of it. And then... Um, smoking but not cigarettes it would be pipe tobacco and so th th there was all this like honed in image of this uh sort of refined macho man this new definition of masculinity that's really like an old definition of masculinity uh, kind of harkening back to you know centuries before kind of stuff um and you know if i look back on it now it's kind of this idea of of like we've lost something and maybe maybe there's there, there's something going wrong <laughs> with uh, the world, and uh, somehow that's that's because we have uh, blurred the lines or or changed definitions, and we need to get to a more traditional approach. We need to go back to how things were. We need to get rid of the contamination, the um, the inner mixing or the whatever that that changed stuff up. And and if we can somehow go back. Uh, then things will be okay. Uh, that always seemed to be the undertone. That that idea of a return to a garden. Um, yeah. So it was a weird mix because on one hand, I was finding tremendous connection with these guys because they seem to be looking at the things that are more important. They're, they're going like, life should be more than what society is saying it should be. And I'm like, yeah, I totally agree with that. And they're saying spirituality should have a, a, a role in our lives, that, that we should be recognizing um, our own limits and, and that there are higher powers involved. And I'm going, yeah, yeah, that's, that's totally. But also there is this other side, this, um, this side that had to do a lot with um, allowing for things that we're definitely uh, like in the ways of the world. Like we never really considered it much of a problem when people were getting drunk. It was almost like the cost of the manhood or uh, violence was never really questioned either. Some of the favorite movies of all these guys during those times were stuff like Boondock Saints or um, Fight Club and, and, and these types of things where there's like this macho fighting through presence, this, this idea of you got to force your way through this chaos um, and create order uh, first in your own life, and then it will stem into the world. But, but you have to force it. You have to wrestle it uh, from all of the other stuff that's going on in the world. And somehow being slightly broken is almost like a virtue like like somehow you've failed in your moral character if you are not beating up your body and pushing yourself to the absolute limits like if you are not living a type of life with 
the amount of pushing yourself and the amount of intention that it causes you to have trouble coping, then you're less of a man, then you aren't living up to your calling and you need to be doing more. And I definitely internalized that, that meaning of manhood as sacrifice. And in some ways it was really empowering because it was like, okay, so it's not my externalities that matter. It's the character within me. And the ultimate virtue is sacrifice. So for, for me, I was able to like internalize that and go, okay, well, I don't have a lot of energy, but I could make the most out of what I'm given, which was not a lot. And in some ways, that does seem like an echo of uh, some biblical passages and some things that I was taught growing up. Uh, the, the idea of grit and pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. Definitely within my extended family is this notion that like, you don't have to be great, but you do have to do great things with what you were given. And so there's this constant battle that was within me of like, am I doing enough? Am I working hard enough? Am I making the sacrifices needed for the better world to come? So with my energy, I have this trouble where I feel this tremendous sense of purpose. Like I'm still alive for a reason, but I don't quite know what to do with it. Um, I'm taking some biology classes at that point, which is ironic because I'm learning about the body and how it works, but I am also learning to completely ignore my body's signals that are telling me to slow down and to stop. But even so, um, I'm floundering. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to keep busy doing things that are involved with the church, but I'll have days that really suck. And so, um, you know, constantly being told, Hey, it looks like you've got a lot on your plate right now. Maybe this isn't the best spot for you, or maybe this isn't the best position for you. Um, and trying to find ways to sacrifice because I feel like that's what I'm supposed to do. And, and I just can't get it to happen. I can't even seem to find a job, uh, except I do find a job. But interestingly, how I get that job is uh, because of Kim. So at this point, we had been broken up for, I don't know, a year and a half, two years, something like that. And sort of made small amends, but, but not really. And uh, as sort of an olive branch, um, I think on her part, which was really amazing, was she uh, put in a good word for me at Starbucks, which is where she worked. And I ended up getting the job. And that was such a good break for me because I felt like I could produce more, that I could be a producer rather than a consumer, which was always a a constant struggle of like, am I being a burden to people? I didn't feel like I was being a burden anymore. And uh, I was able to be uh, generous with my paychecks and uh, help people when they were in need of help and all this kind of stuff. And there was a lot of things during that time that felt really empowering and really wonderful. Um, but it didn't last that long <laughs> because of my fatigue. Uh, there was a day where I missed work and then uh, like another day a week later. And um, I think there was one incident where I talked back to a customer or something. Either way, uh, it, they have a three strike rule. And I got three strikes, and so they fired me. And that was a really hard 
time because I felt so much shame over that. Like I can't even hold a part-time job. What is wrong with me? This, this isn't supposed to be this hard. And on one sense, I knew that there was the fatigue, but there was also always this fear of like, how much am I faking this? Because I know that I won't be able to measure up otherwise. Uh, am I just giving myself an out by saying, oh, I'm tired all the time? You know, am I just um, pretending that this sickness that I had is stretching out so that people will not look down on me, so that I can fake my way at being a real man? And um, it was in the midst of that that I caught a pretty good break, actually, which was while I was living at the 10th Street house. That's that's the big dorm house. I don't know if I mentioned that's what we called it because it was on 10th Street. Um, you know, very straightforward. Uh, while I was living at this house, um, the room across from me was this dedicated room that they had set up just for prayer. And it was one of the cooler things that I've seen because we had a separate, uh, entrance down there in the basement. Um, the couple other rooms that were in that same hallway each had their own locks. So we, we felt like we could be safe, but we kept the rest open and this one room was free for anybody to walk in and we had the sign that said prayer room down this way and we got for it to be known that you could just go in there and you could spend some time um with whatever you needed to spend time with whether you wanted to pray or not uh it was this place of solitude that people could go into and it was so cool because I was able to see all these people coming in and out all the time I would usually just keep my door open uh, while I had all this time where I wasn't working and I didn't know what else to do, you know, I was just kind of going to school when I had my classes and then kind of just hanging out because everybody else was so busy. Uh, there wasn't a lot of room for a lot of people to hang out. Everybody was busy with everything else. So um, I would just watch. I would watch as these these random people would just come in and uh, do like five or ten minute prayer reset thing and then leave. And uh, it felt so much more right than anything else that I had been feeling. And so I was drawn to this room and I started going into the room pretty regularly and just praying. And it started out praying, like asking for things um, or or even thankfulness for things. But that ran out pretty quick because you start saying the same thing over and over again. If you're going in there two or three times a day, you know, there's only so many times that you can say, uh, you know, dear God, please remove this sickness from me. And eventually it got to just be going in there to be in the presence of, of what I uh, understood at that time to, was to be God, to, to be in this presence of this greater whatever, and uh, to just kind of relish in it and be grateful for it and enjoy it. And I remember some of those times were actually some of the most wonderful times of my life. Actually, like, I had no job, I had no money, I was, I was sleeping on an air mattress, and uh, I would go into this room and just feel at peace and feel gratitude for my life. I think during these times, it, it was that life felt like enough and I felt like enough. I didn't have to be fighting my way through or, or striving for something extra. It's, it was this change of perspective that like, Okay, maybe having a warm place to sleep, having enough food, and having time to do something that I care about is all that I really need.
and it was in the midst of this that Thanksgiving came around. And because I was still fairly new to the house and my parents really didn't know anybody that I was living with, my mom said, hey, uh, invite anybody from your house to Thanksgiving. And so I did. And one of my housemates kind of misunderstood the intention. I think he thought more that my mom meant it as a charity thing for like anybody who didn't have a place to be. Um, you know, rather than getting to know the people that I'm living with. And he said, well, I know a friend of a friend. And I said, oh, okay, yeah, totally. Um, let me ask my mom. And I tell my mom, and because my mom is a kind soul, she goes, oh, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, let, let them come. And so they do, and there's we, we let this guy into our house, and we, um, you know, we give him this great meal, and I get to talking to him a little bit because of this and find out that he doesn't really have a place to stay, and he's kind of trying to figure out things as he's going to college. And so you know, w w within this spot of abundance, this, this spot that I've been stepping into with the prayer of like, I've got enough. Uh, I go, Hey, you know, it's, it's not the best, but my mattress is a queen size. Um, there should be room enough for two people to sleep on there. And if you need a place to crash for just a couple of weeks or whatever, just, you know, let me know you've, you've got a place. And so he took me up on that offer. And then a couple of weeks down the line, I uh, go to pay my rent and I recognize that the money th that I had uh, withdrew because at that time we were we were paying cash for rent so crazy but we were paying cash so I had the cash already uh, set and it was just like on my one piece of furniture my dresser uh, right up top and when I go to get it to pay for rent it's not there and so immediately I assume it must be this guy. And so I confront him about it. I say, Hey, look, like what, what the heck, man? Uh, my money's gone. Uh, and I, I, at the time think what I'm doing is being this bigger person, which is I say, Hey, money's gone. I'm not mad, but I do need that money back. No hard feelings if you return it. And the response I get is like, how dare you accuse me of that? And I can't believe you accused me like, um, I'm gone, man. I, I got to find another place to live if you don't trust me. And I never really did find out if it was him or not. I think there's probably some other issues here, which uh, is he was black. And I think that there was some unchecked racism that we had at the time towards him. Very, very similar to that whole uh, Thanksgiving meal that I was talking about with, uh, with Shell's uncle, where... He was offered to come in, but like uninvited the moment he caused a ruckus and uh, uh, that kind of thing. I, I think that there was something similar going on there where it was like we saw ourselves as the sort of white savior. Um, and I don't think this is purely black and white like this, but I think there was a certain degree of mistrust because of the uh, racial stereotypes that that I automatically went to, oh, he must have stolen it. And I don't I don't know that I would have uh, if he was white. And honestly, I don't think it matters if he did or not. Because the thing is, is he was desperate. Like, 
none of us were in that house. <laughs> um, every last one of us with our little Christian upbringing and our white middle-class existence, we wanted to pretend we were edgy and self-made and all this stuff, but we all had extended family and support systems and um, people who would <clears throat> would bring us in if something were to ever happen. And uh, this guy didn't. He didn't have any of that. And so, you know, I when I look back on that, I don't think, you know, even if he did take it, it was not a moral failing on his part. It was a societal failing. It was a thing where we did not, we decided a person's worth has to be proved and that the basic necessities of life are not guaranteed, that you have to fight your way to get what you need to survive. And I think this just goes into this deeper idea of scarcity, this idea that there is not enough for everybody. And so the only people that can have stuff are the people that deserve it. This idea that somehow if I have more, somebody else has less. And if I have less, somebody else has more. Um, this idea that if you give somebody something, you're losing something. And it's really pervasive. It's, it's something that I, th I think that's exactly what colonialism and expansion uh, does. It, it works with that mindset, that idea that there's not enough with what we already have, but that we have to get more. Um, it works with um, the way that billionaires continue to hoard money, even though there's more than they could ever spend because it's this fear, this idea that um, what you have will be taken away from you and that there won't be enough tomorrow. So you, you better prepare for that by uh, hoarding, by uh, grabbing tightly. But honestly, I just, I don't see that in nature. The moment you start doing stuff like that, systems fall apart. We, we learned pretty early on that you have to have a three-field system because the land needs to be fallow. The land needs to sit. It, you can't always be producing. You have to let go sometimes and let it regenerate. Anyway, uh, this guy checks out with my rent, or he doesn't. Um, you know, that's the story that I've always told myself is that he's the one that did it. And uh, I have no proof of that. I don't know who took it, but somebody took my rent. And I am feeling such shame over it because I feel like it's my fault that I left it on my dresser. And I don't know what to do, but my mom hasn't seen me, uh, you know, in like a week or two. And so she says, hey, let's go get some food. And we go get some food and she can tell that something is weighing on me because she's my mother and she knows. And she says, hey, what's up? And I say, well, you know, I wasn't going to say anything because uh, I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. But... I don't have my money for rent and I don't know what to do because this, this, and this happened. She goes, Oh, I'm so sorry. You know? Uh, and even as I'm talking and as I'm explaining it, she's taking out her checkbook and she's writing it down. She goes, how much was it for again? And then she hands it over to me and I am just flabbergasted. I'm like, I don't deserve this. And she just waves her hand and she goes, you know, I wish there was more things in life that I could just solve by writing a couple numbers down. It's no big deal. And I thought this was insanely profound. Um, at the time, I took it as a such a real-world example of grace, this idea of God's grace, like getting what we don't deserve. And I think that there was probably some merit of that. Uh, like there was, it was a grace-filled moment. 
But I think looking back to the tremendous power of it was how much it threw in the face um, this idea of money and wealth and, and what is it really for? It was this profound moment of realizing like, wait, you can do that? You can just decide that it doesn't matter to you? You can just decide like, yeah, sure, why not? It's just a number anyway. Um, and I loved that. And that was really freeing for me because if her large bit of money, which um, was fairly large at the time, it was dwindling uh, because my dad didn't have the job, but it was savings. So uh, it was something that was their future. Uh, it was essentially their retirement plan because they missed out on both of their retirements just because of the way that things worked. Um, and uh, so so the money was there, but it was supposed to last for a long time. And uh, just how quickly she said, you know, uh, I may need this in the future. I don't know, but I know that you need this now. So let me do this. Uh, that was such a cool and freeing moment that I feel like really flew in the face of these uh, ideals that we have decided are so important. These ideals of preservation and these ideals of offsetting the now for the future and the constant accumulation, the frugality, trying to make everything perfectly efficient all the time, um, all this stuff. It was just such a freeing moment for me because I, I thought, you know, uh, if her big numbers mean, or can can mean nothing to her, then my small numbers can mean nothing to me. I can I can decide that it doesn't matter that my bank account's zero. I can decide to not worry about it. I can decide to trust that this world that we live in is abundant, that I have relationships around me that matter, that people will take care of me if I ever get stuck, and that things are going to be okay. I can choose to trust that, and I don't have to let that big zero on my bank account dictate whether or not I'm going to be okay. So winter comes and I happen to get a new job. This new job is snowboard instructing. And snowboarding was something that me and my dad did all the time uh, growing up. He was one of those uh, pioneer types for snowboarding uh, that in the 80s would sneak into the ski resorts and outrun ski patrol or uh, go backcountry with his friends and, and, and do all sorts of wild stuff um, before the 90s when it was uh, accepted. In fact, there's even a story of him uh, getting caught in an avalanche with his friends and having to dig his buddy out and basically uh, haul him on his snowboard in five feet of snow for a mile until he could get to the highway. But um, maybe that's a story for another time. That could be fun. I would love to research it, actually get in touch with his old friends and, and hear their perspective on it. But um, So I, I grew up with this, this um, sport and this sort of mythos behind it that it's the, uh, the more wild of the snow sports, that it's uh, untamed and, uh, uh, for lack of a better word, manly. And, and I don't think my dad intentionally tried to square that off to me like yeah it was just he was showing me his interest and was glad that I was interested so we were interested together but um it still ended up being sort of this subconscious thing of like no ski skiing is kind of girly and snowboarding that's that's the manly thing and so I was psyched when I got a snowboard uh instructor job because I felt like my dad would be so proud of me he would be so excited for me and he totally was and it was this weird disconnect, though, because 
a seasonal job like that is not considered like a quote unquote adult job. And I felt like I had to justify it <laughs> with all these people that I lived with. Yeah, you know, I was like, hey, I got a job, guys. And they're like, oh, cool. What is it? What's this? And he's like, and they're like, oh, cool, man. You know, do you think that's going to last? Like, you know, do you want, are you going to do that five years from now? Or, you know, uh, is that going to be okay later? And uh, I would have to kind of like prove the worth of it. You know, like, hey, guys, guess what? I got this many tips today because I'm rocking it and I'm doing great. And uh, it's uh, it's so much fun up there. And I feel like I'm being active. And I feel like it's been really good for my chronic fatigue, uh, which it wasn't really. I always just fought through it. But, you know, I would say that. I would try to spin the story as like, okay, this is like, this is something that's worthy. Um, because I knew it was worth. Like, it was worthy by the mere fact that I loved it. And I had a new a sense of enjoyment in something I was doing that, that, that should have been all it was, but I felt like I had to justify it in terms of like monetary value or future value and all this kind of stuff. And um, so there's always this constant tension, but at the end of the day, for me, part of the reason I loved it was I could make a lot of money in the winter time and then I could rest for a while. Uh, there would be days where we had, uh, this thing, uh, just because of how California law works, if you are on the schedule, uh, they have to let you work. And so um, what would happen is you could be frontline or backline. And backline meant that you were opting out, and frontline meant that you were opting in. And uh, so if you were frontline, they would pick you first to be the one to do the lessons. And if you're backline, they'd pick you last. But the trick was, if it was such a slow day that you were frontline and you still couldn't get, you still didn't get picked, you essentially like opted into the shift, which meant that you would still get paid even though you didn't teach anything. Whereas if you backline, you're more likely to not have to work that day, but um, you automatically don't get paid for that because you basically like quote unquote called in sick. So um, it was this really cool dynamic where I could uh, decide any given day if I was up for it. I could listen to my body and I could go, how do I feel? Do I feel like I can do this today? And um, sometimes it wouldn't work. Sometimes we'd be full enough that we needed everybody. And they'd say, hey, is, please, if there's any way, can you still work? But most of the time, if you backlined it, you were free for the day and you just wouldn't get paid for that. And sometimes uh, if you were up for it, uh, you would say, hey, I'm up for it and I feel good. And then they'd say, hey, we don't have any lessons. So uh, go have fun. And th those were the best days because I had already checked in with my body and I decided I have the energy, I can do this, and I'm ready for it. And then to be told, uh, yeah, there's actually no obligation for you, just go have fun, uh, was so, so wonderful. I, I've loved those days so much, and it was so hard to articulate the amount of freedom that that brought to be able to um, take these moments where I had energy, which were few and far in between, and actually be able to do something filling with them rather than something that was an obligation was so cool. But when we started, uh, they had to teach us how to actually teach. So they would make this mock-up uh, class for us and we'd go up on the lift with one of the veteran instructors and they would pretend like we didn't know anything and show us how it all works. And one of these guys, Alistair, I think he was from, I think he was from New Zealand. Anyway, he, what he would do, we thought he was the coolest because um, in South America, he would be there in the summer doing snowboarding. And then he would fly over to the U.S. and work at the ski resort and do that for the winter. And then just go back and forth 
and he basically uh, was just in a constant state of winter. Um, now, I found out later, a couple years later, he actually had to stop snowboard instructing completely because he, um, his knees were getting absolutely wrecked because he wasn't giving them the rest in between seasons <laughs> to, uh, to recover and to rebuild. So I guess that's just another one of those examples of, of how things kind of naturally flow in and out, and, and we try to disrupt that pattern. But anyway, he, we thought he was the coolest. He had all the cool tricks that he'd do. Uh, he was lots of fun. He was lively. And he happened to be the one that was teaching us snowboarders. And we're, we're there uh, all lined up as if we're taking a class. And he's facing us. And as one of these skiing groups goes by, he says really loudly, All right, guys, uh, first question before anything what is the hardest part about learning how to ski? And we're all looking at each other. We're like, why, why are you at, we're all on snowboards. Why are you asking us about skis? And he's like, anybody, anybody. Okay. I'll tell you the hardest part about learning how to ski. And he says it loud enough so that the whole ski group kind of by us can hear it. The hardest part about learning how to ski is telling your parents you're gay. And we all laughed at this cause we were immature kids. And, um, I thought it was the funniest thing because it was like a confirmation that I had held subconsciously, which was that like, I'm in the right sport. I'm not in the girly one. I'm in the cool one. I'm in the man, the manly one, the masculine one. And, uh, I chose right. And my family is cool. My dad's cool. And, uh, we're real men because we have the sport. And, and it's not like I, you know, it's not like I uh, thought that consciously. It, it was a subconscious thing. But there was a lot of small reinforcements that way, too, uh, where we would... Uh, there's this guy, Mike, and he was a skier. And uh, there would always be this friendly ban banter back and forth. And it was truly friendly. There was kind of a, a, a fun not taking each other too seriously thing. But, you know, uh, we'd be like, hey, uh, I heard the other day that uh, Ski Patrol got called because one of your... Uh, one of your guys broke a nail, you know, and then he'd call back like, oh, well, uh, you know, uh, he misunderstood. He saw all of the, uh, the bruising on your knuckles from him dragging on the ground. And he thought maybe it was a serious thing. And so, you know, there'd be these like fun back and forths, but, but really at the core of it was this, uh, implication that skiers are effeminate, that they are, uh, prissy and, um, they're afraid of falling and they are, uh, not fun and, uh, stuck up and, um, yeah, not real men was, was, was kind of the undertone. And so, you know, living in this house, this 10th street house, I, um, I internalized a lot of those masculine values and this was just kind of a perpetuation of that. It was something that I don't think growing up I felt that way. It felt more um snowboarding just felt more like a uh, a wild untamed adventurous sort of thing, like something out in the wilderness and something that people don't quite know what to grasp with. Like some people are okay with it, some people aren't. It it was this nebulous thing where it was both the rebel thing and the cool thing, but also uh, the established thing, you know, it, it's either you're a skier or a snowboarder. Um, you're one of the two, but, but also like that binary was false. I knew a lot of skiers that were also snowboarders, snowboarders are also skiers. Uh, you know, my dad was that way. 
uh, my sister's that way. And, um, but somewhere along the lines, it ended up being more static. And, and maybe that was because I had turned the snowboarding into a job and you were either a snowboard instructor or a ski instructor and you were very rarely both. I, I think that that's probably what it was. So I'm telling my parents about this whole situation and I tell them the joke. And uh, my mom says, well, wait, but honey, I'm a skier. And my dad, without skipping a beat, he says, yeah, and honey, you like men. And at the time, I thought that was absolutely hilarious. I thought it was great wit, all that sort of stuff. And uh, now I realize it was just kind of a, a casual um, uh, casual sexism. And, and, and not, you know, my dad was pretty good on most of those things. Um, but everybody's a product of their upbringing. And, and it's not something that I, at the time, uh, even thought of as that way. But I do recognize that it's subtly reinforced in my brain that skiing is gay, that skiing is not the manly thing to do, that somehow uh, you are less than. So fast forward to the end of the season, and my boss on a slow day says, uh, hey, Aaron, do you want to work? And I go, yeah, today's a great day to do the front of the line because I can probably get away with not doing anything. I don't see anybody here for lessons. And uh, so I say, uh, yeah, I'm willing to work. And he says, okay, great. Go down to the rental shop. You're getting skis and you're learning. And I go, oh, no, I can't be a skier. That's not right. And so I take a moment. I'm like, am I going to, is this going to be the hill that I die on? Or, or am I going to kind of change my ways here a little bit? Recognize that, you know, conditions are different. Maybe I was a little bit too binary with this whole thing and I can let go of it. So uh, I decide that that's better. And I go down and I get skis. And I realize that I actually have a really great affinity for it. I pick it up within the day because I've been hearing all these people talk about it. And weirdly, I have this recognition that this might actually be a little bit more natural for my body than snowboarding. That I might actually, like if I were to choose this, I could be more comfortable as a skier than a snowboarder. Um, but I don't like that idea. And I want, I want to be I want pushback against that. Like I, I want somebody to tell me that's not true because I don't feel comfortable with that. So I uh, send a message, a text message to uh, one of my friends in the house and I, I tell him, hey dude, uh, I might be gay. And he responds back with like, what? Oh my gosh, like uh, let's talk. And I go, oh no, he's taking this seriously. <laughs> uh, shoot, first off, ouch. Uh, because I thought of myself as uh, maybe not quite one of the guys, but like I, I wanted to believe that I was worthy of my gender. And it felt uncomfortable, the idea that, that he might have taken me seriously, because at that time, uh, just like skiing meant being less of a man, uh, being gay meant being less of a man. Being gay meant somehow... Uh, being diminished somehow um, avoiding your call to manhood or uh, pretending like you were something different than you are it it um, through the framework through that Christian masculine framework was um, that is a selfish act that you were pretending at being because that is not who you were made to be that is not who you're supposed to be um, you need to man up and you need to stop trying to be a woman was basically the stereotype. And I didn't feel comfortable with that, that he like immediately thought that that's 
what I was quote unquote doing. So I, uh, I sent him a picture of the skis and I said, well, I don't feel gay, but, um, I'm wearing skis, so I must be gay. And, uh, you know, he sent a, a laugh little emoji thing and, uh, said, oh my gosh, you really had me there for a second. Um, LOL, all that kind of stuff. And because I had kind of a, a confidence boost from that response, um, I'm like, oh, this is funny. Uh, uh, I'm getting positive reinforcement for this kind of behavior. So I go and I call up my dad and I get a voicemail and I send him this big, long message where I say, hey, dad, how's it going? Uh, so something happened today and I never thought it would happen. And uh, I don't know how I feel about it. But um, you've always taught me to be my own man and to uh, choose my own way. And, and so this is me choosing my own way. And I know you're probably not going to accept it, but I have to accept it because it's who I am. And, you know, and I keep going this way, making it sound like um, I'm admitting that I'm gay. And then at the end of it, I basically say, uh, so here it is. I'm just going to say, Dad, I'm a skier. And that was my voicemail. And I'm sitting there um, going like, oh my gosh, you know, <laughs> was that okay to do? I feel a little bit of unease about having done it. And I'm like wanting this reassurance. I'm like, was that actually funny? Or am I just like, am I not being okay by saying this? So I uh, shoot a call to my mom and I tell her like what it is or, or like what I had done and um, what I'd said. And she goes, oh my gosh, that's that's so funny. You know, so I'm getting this reinforcement. I'm like, oh, that's great. And, uh, and then immediately she goes really quiet. And then she goes, oh, honey, um, you better make sure that your father heard through the whole thing. And then I go, oh, shoot, because um, I'm deathly afraid of my dad thinking that I'm gay. Uh, this is something that had come up before because uh, being friends with Spooky, my dad had kind of um, we, we were getting pretty close and we were just friends, but, um, he was afraid and I could see the, the, the fear that he had about that. Um, this fear that, uh, I would be, uh, less of a man that, which I think for, for him was like a reflection of him failing, uh, to, to raise me properly, to raise me right. Uh, this was definitely a, a point where like, I don't think that he had a lot of acceptance there. Um, I think he could have grown into that um, given time. Like, I, I think if I would have come out as something different than heteronormative, I think he would have um, accepted me and he would have changed his views for that. But because it was a, a nebulous thing, there was a lot of casual comments or um, th things that I had heard that for me internalized, like that would not be something that's okay. Um, my dad might not accept me were I to feel that way or were I to recognize that about myself, I would have to keep that to myself. So my mom gives this awkward silence and I go, oh no, oh shoot. And then um, after about a second of pause, I hear my dad in the background between fits of laughter going, no son of mine, <sighs> you know, like laugh, 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 laugh. No son of mine is gonna be a skier on my watch, you know, and like acting like this, um, unaccepting father to a gay son, uh, but in, in terms of the skis. And so it, it was really interesting because that's a story for years that I told as this funny, 
um, sort of play with language and misunderstanding and uh, pretending to be something, you know, like uh, making fun of the people that are unaccepting and things like that. But I think looking back, there was a little bit of a sort of, again, casual sexism there and perpetuating of these norms, like uh, signaling that like, yeah, that sort of action is less than, as well as like, even though it's exaggerated, um, anything that deviates from the norm of masculine behavior is unacceptable. Um, and we can joke about it in a hyperbolic sense, but there is some truth there. And as males, I think this is a pretty standard experience to have the quote-unquote locker room talk, uh, the jokes that you say um, when you're not around mixed company, but uh, you you get conditioned in a pretty, pretty young age to make fun of uh, men acting effeminate and make fun of... Uh, de any deviations from the norm in a way that creates this sort of bonding for uh, the group of men that you're around of like, oh yeah, we're not like those people. Uh, and and it's this sort of purging out of any sort of contamination to that masculinity. It's like signaling that like, no, these behaviors are not okay. This is not what we're about. So like... Um, don't act like a woman. You can't do that because that will uh, incite ridicule. That will make you not one of us. And I think the funny thing about this, which is the funny thing about all contamination, is that this idea of purity can't really be maintained anyway. So there's all these these men talking and making these jokes and then each one of them, I, I believe each one of them, has this underlying fear, whether conscious or subconscious, that they are um, meeting that stereotype in some way or another. So maybe a joke is about being overly expressive. And then in response, every guy in that group is going, this part of me that I feel is overly expressive, I can no longer do that. I have to hide that. I have to square that away. I don't necessarily have to get rid of it, but I can't show it. I can't let that part of me be shown. And so there's this inherent thing on uh, being on the top of the hierarchy uh, for gender norms where uh, you're not allowed certain parts of the human experience. So, like, for instance, um, a woman acting like a man sometimes will be ridiculed or will be met with discomfort. Um, especially if it's something where she is uh, meeting <laughs> the the same level that the men are, right? Like, it's cool if a girl works out, but if she starts lifting the same amount of weights as you, you feel uncomfortable, like, because then your own masculinity is, uh, you know, threatened. But, um, but it's kind of okay if she sort of gets there, right? Um, but the opposite isn't true. You can't be sort of feminine as a man. That's not okay. Uh, because it's like you're moving down on the rung of the ladder because if, if masculinity is considered on top and then women are below that, like like 
okay, it's cool. Women are trying to move up. Fine. You could even say like, yeah, I love women's rights. Like they deserve to be in the workplace. Uh, they deserve to have an equal wage, all this kind of stuff. You can say that because you're like, oh yeah, because women are trying to move up. That's cool. But uh, if you are already on the top and uh, you're doing behavior that is quote unquote, like down the rung, uh, that's unacceptable. And so for men, especially, there's this whole part of themselves that they sequester off and um, hide and and get in the habit of hiding, uh, especially when it comes to like emotionality or uh, a nurturing side or a, a side that appreciates beauty, all these sort of things. Um, those sort of pursuits become individualized rather than a community aspect. So stuff that should be done in community, which is caring for each other, um, creating art, appreciating beauty, talking about emotions, those things still happen in a man's life. But because he's he's been told by the other men around him that these are quote unquote womanly behaviors, uh, that becomes a private matter, that becomes a self matter that you just don't share it with anybody. And again, that's not to say it's black and white. It's not that men don't share emotions and men don't create art and men aren't expressive, but it's more that the default is to not share that. And you almost have to step out of that default just, just to get those things to be shared with other people, which kind of means that there's a unnecessary, well, it's necessary within the structure that we're in, but not inherently necessary a barrier that you have to overcome just for uh, connecting with others. So within these masculine norms becomes this uh, hyper individuality as well, where you become blind to the suffering of others, to the experiences of others, and you become twisted in on yourself constantly, um, one, focused on yourself in isolation for means of fulfillment, which is never really enough. And beyond that, um, because you're not interacting on a deep level with as many people around you, you are not getting uh, diverse perspectives. You're not getting uh, other ideas from elsewhere in the world, from outside your uh, immediately immediate small sphere of understanding. And you get this illusion of self-sufficiency but the problem is, is as human beings, we never have enough to be sufficient on our own. Uh, that's just not how we operate. I don't think that's how anything operates because everything is connected. And so when we're disconnected, there's a higher degree of depression. There's a higher degree of a lack of fulfillment. And I remember this time of my early and mid-20s feeling a lot of that stuff. Uh, as I would step into these masculine norms, I would feel more alone rather than uh, more connected. So it would be these vicious cycles where you do the masculine thing to connect with a group and the group reinforces that behavior. And so you hide these parts of yourself and you feel like more of a fraud and you isolate more in on yourself and you feel more disconnected. But then you remember that there is that small little bit of connection, even though it was kind of a false connection. It was a false belonging. And uh, that was the only thing that you'd got before. So you go for that again. And then you get these continual cycles and um, it ends up being all these conversations about things that maybe you might be excited about, but actually don't really matter for you as a person. Like, oh, did you 
play that new video game or did you see that movie or um, did you see how such and such team is doing or even other things too like hey check out this new workout bag I got or um, hey I am thinking of investing in a gun these sort of things that really are substitutes for a connection but are still kind of a camaraderie that just makes more and more isolation and loneliness. And especially I want to touch on the gun thing. That was such a huge thing. And it was such a hard thing for me to square my mind around because the Christianity that I grew up with was uh, peaceful and uh, trying to get everybody's needs met. I, I saw this Jesus as a kind of hippie character, to be honest. And I was really cool for that belief a little bit. Uh, within this structure, within this household. And one thing that all these guys were so interested in, aside from like the drinking and the pipe smoking and the, the swearing and all that, were uh, guns. And I couldn't quite understand it because it's like, no, this is, this is a tool to kill. And they would say, oh, this is a tool to protect. And I'd be like, I, maybe, but I don't think that's how you guys are using it. And um, that was kind of a cool nuance to, to see, to recognize, like, actually, I think that there probably could be some good here, especially my, one of my friends growing up, Tyler, he grew up hunting, and the guns never felt like a deadly weapon, per se, like, they felt like something where, like, you know, if he had to, he could protect his family, but that was never really the focus, the focus wasn't these power plays, the focus was provision, the focus was, uh, I can use this tool, um, to step into a way of relationship with the world around me so that I don't have to go to a supermarket to buy this food, but that I can track this animal, understand its movements, step into its world for a bit um, and kill it, but, but also recognize that as a sacrifice, a sacrifice that we always make for every food that we eat, but, but to actually witness it and be present to it and have an appreciation for that sacrifice and let that transcend into a bounty for my entire family. So um, <laughs> that wasn't really what uh, what these guys were doing. It was, it was a little bit different of a thing. And it had to do with fears of being man enough of like, oh, I need to be the protector. I need to be the one who um, is willing to do the messed up thing if necessary for the sake of everybody else. That it's okay if I'm damaged, if I'm a troubled individual uh, because I'm freeing it up for everybody else to be okay. Uh, which honestly is just a more of that scarcity mindset. Like if everybody else is okay, then I'm not allowed to be okay. Like somebody has to have not enough for everybody else to have enough, uh, which is just a lie. You, you shouldn't have to sacrifice the core of your being um, in order for things to be all right. And so it was within this context that I saw a lot of unhealthy patterns that were just kind of brushed off as like, this is the cost of being a man. Um, the biggest one being drinking, obviously. Uh, this need to numb and to not feel everything so much, I think came from two directions. One of the directions was, uh, I don't want to feel my emotions. I'm not supposed to feel my emotions because I'm a man. Uh, so I need something to curb that, to <laughs> uh, weirdly to to numb me out so I can keep going.
um, so that I don't feel my body as much, so I don't feel my hurt as much. Um, I need an anesthetic. And, and honestly, I think that that's what most addictions have to do with, is, is some way masking the pain. I think that that's when um, a substance use becomes substance abuse, when it's used as a, a coping mechanism to fill a gap that exists elsewhere in life. So there's this huge gap of connection with other people and that's actually a really good framework to look at addiction through. The opposite of addiction uh, being connection. When you're connected with people and you're getting your needs met on a fulfilling level, uh, there's not a need to fill a lack because there's not a lack anymore. Um, but with these guys, there's a lot of drinking. Uh, there was the tobacco use as well. Um, and a lot of them were pr pretty heavy chain smokers, to be honest. Uh, be three or four bowls of pipe tobacco a night. And... Um, so, so, you know, that, that was a thing. Uh, I, I think another big one was pornography, which when you look at it from the lens of connection, like you're feeling disconnected from everybody around you and you're not being given permission to feel the connection, uh, whether that's from the men around you because it's only over the surface level stuff or it's the women around you because you're told that they're less than so there's not really a, a good easy way to make a true connection uh, because there's not a sense of being equal with um it it really it makes sense that there's there's this private life that emerges uh, like i had said and it becomes this repository for all the things that you're not getting elsewhere and porn even though it does it in a uh unfulfilling way uh, does fill some of those needs. It's a mimicking connection. It's mimicking um, aliveness. Uh, it, it's mimicking emotions because you're feeling it in your body. And unfortunately, it, it's also tied in with a constant consumerism, a constant dissatisfaction, uh, a constant want for more, more, more. Uh, the, those kind of uh, habits in porn tend towards addiction and tend towards uh, a bit of corruption as well because you're hyper-stimulating the, uh, the receptors and the response because you're getting the reward without the work, without the effort. Because normally that level of connection is uh, from other connections right like like that physical connection is happening because of an emotional connection because of two human beings uh being close enough to each other to trust each other with the wholeness of their bodies um you don't normally get that in the span of two minutes uh but you do with pornography and so it disrupts the signals it it turns them towards rather than cycles rather than a season for everything it turns it into a uh, quick gratification and that fades off pretty quick because that's how dopamine hits work. And then you try to get more uh, from the same thing. You know, you, you need more to get the same feeling. And so you have to find a new novel experience. So you're searching deeper. You're getting more and more into specifics uh, rather than just like, oh, I'll watch any video. It's got to be this certain type of person doing this certain type of position in a certain type of context. Um, and so it trends towards addiction. 
So it, it's interesting to see how there's there's all these things that were always problems, but never really questioned. Like within that male Christian context, uh, drinking and pornography and and any sort of substance abuse or, or video games were another one, right? Uh, all these things were uh, demonized. They were said like, no, you can't do that. That's not what being a real man is. But none of the core causes of those addictions were addressed. Uh, so you're left with feeling this sense of extreme shame because you're, you're, your body, your subconscious, whatever, is trying to survive. And so you're gravitating towards these things that are less than ideal, but they're at least something, uh, which is a, a, a good thing that your body's surviving. That's, that's you trying to continue forward in the world. Uh, even if it's an inadequate thing, it's at least something. And so there's that. Um, but then being told that that's not okay that you're not allowed to do that. Uh, one, it perpetuates that notion that the body is meant to be sort of destroyed or used up, um, that you have to uh, let go of your desires and let go of your own personal wants and your own discomfort for the sake of others. Uh, and two, it, it turns towards this tremendous shame because it's something that should have been something that you love your body for, for saying, I'm so glad that you want to survive. Um, and then where you can, from a loving stance, go like, maybe we can find a better way Instead, it goes like, like the message you receive turns you towards, I'm this horrible person and I suck and I'm not a real man and I'm not, I'm not okay. There is something deeply wrong with me. And unfortunately, it creates this, this interesting perpetual spiral where uh, you feel that because of these signals that you get. And then you get told through this religious system that that's exactly how you're supposed to feel because man is totally depraved. And uh, the only thing for you is the salvation of God. And, and so, so then you're, you're told this thing within you is impure and will be leached out by this purity of Christ. And, uh, and you believe that. And in a weird way, you feel that because you are doing that within the context of community. So you're going to church, you're getting connections with people, you're confessing your sins, and then you no longer feel shame over them, but that's because somebody else is sharing in them with you. And you're re-entering into community and you're entering into better patterns, but you think, oh, that works. Um, and so you decide that that's something that everybody else needs, that the rest of the world is impure. And if only they could get to the purity, uh, they'll be fixed. But I guess the thing that was hard for me was um, because of my fatigue and because of the context that community happened within the church, I felt a lot of disconnect because I couldn't make the weekly meetings. I couldn't serve in a continual capacity. And it was really hard for me to find that community. And so for me, and I think this is true for a lot of people who are on the margins. Uh, church becomes even more alienating. And rather than something that feels a freedom or, or a newfound hope, you get into this shame spiral where you feel like you're not enough. And then you feel more like you're not enough because it's working for other people. and It's not working for you. So why wouldn't it be working for you? If I am going to God, this thing that you say is supposed to fix me, and I am still um, going to drugs, 
looking at porn, whatever, doing these addiction habits, uh, then there must be something so deeply wrong with me specifically. So now that we've kind of gone through for um, almost an hour and 45 minutes here, I think it's a good place to stop. Um, yeah, that means there's going to be one more episode, but um, I don't want to give you guys a three-hour-long thing. That seems like too long to uh, listen to one stretch, so we'll split it up. But uh, I think this is a good place to stop because um, this is something we're sitting with. The uh, amount of sacrifices demanded with modern living on uh, both sides of the gender spectrum. Obviously, I'm just talking about uh, the male side um, because that's my experience, but um, I think that there's just as much that can be said uh, for the stuff that women have to sacrifice because of these norms, as well as this idea of constant production, this idea that um, our bodies are to be reviled and to be used up. Um, I think that's something to sit with. Uh, this idea that the marginalized um, kind of get ignored or devalued or stereotyped, uh, but also that a lot of the reasons they're getting stereotyped for are also things that are um, contaminating the, uh, the the people who do fit the ideal, that nobody really fits the ideal. And um, everybody is just kind of faking it because uh, no, nobody can stand up to these uh, standards that, that we have um, sort of inexplicably placed upon ourselves. I think in the mix of that, especially with the masculine norms, are these um, this emergence of an internal life, of a personal life that you don't share with anybody. Um, I think that that'll probably come into play uh, as I continue to pull this out and continue to pull these themes out uh, within my own story. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, yeah, so contamination is going to continue to be a role. I think hauntings are there too. Um, it's been a little bit less direct with what I've talked about so far, but um, there's a lot there, like the hauntings of a future that you once thought you were going to have. I, I think that's a thing um, that we all sort of experience. Uh, a hauntings of the past, of, of things that have gone, um, friendship dynamics or uh, ways of, of, of being that you've had to abandon to become somebody new. I think uh, those echoes of the past uh, reach out to us in eerie and um, sometimes overwhelming ways, ways that we want to ignore and disregard. Uh, I think this this idea too, there's something that, that's kind of wrestling in my head of um, where monsters really lie. Uh, we tend to externalize it, like the, the idea of the witches and the... Um, the, the vampires and, and, and those sort of things. We have these stories of it externalized, but what it really seems to be beneath the surface of those stories is this idea of something contaminating you. Um, this idea of being changed into something different, something that is unknown and something that's scary. But um, as I'm teasing out these, especially these masculine norms, uh, that I've experienced through my life, you know, I'm recognizing the most dangerous parts about ourselves are when we don't allow ourselves to change. When we say that we can only be this certain way, it puts this tremendous pressure that sort of 
uh, breaks us in small ways, causes us to objectify, causes us to go to violence, um, to disregard other human beings, uh, to minimize or to turn into the enemy. Um, so, yeah, all, all of that, I, I think, is a lot of... Um, a lot of stuff to mull over and to think about and uh, I guess I just want to say sorry that it took so long to get the <laughs> get the episode out the next one should be a little bit quicker I actually have half of it recorded and I um, I found a cutoff point here because I realized that it was going um, I think I'm already out to I don't know to two and a half hours uh, so I got another 45 minutes already set um, and it'll probably be another 45 after that another episode sort of the length of this one um, but that should bring us about to, to the end, full circle. I might do a capstone episode. I'm not sure. I, I did find an old recording that I think is very related to all this stuff. Um, so that could be fun, um, to just put it as an, an addendum and extra, but, uh, that's where we're at. And, um, I will see you guys truly soon, um, for the next part of this, um, contamination of my story and, uh, looking at all these themes that we looked at over the last four or five episodes and, and really sort of integrate them, um, in my life. But hopefully, uh, as I'm doing that for myself, that sort of spurs on you doing the same sort of thing. Um, that would be really cool to see. And in fact, if that's already going on, I would love to hear about it. I would love to hear how these ideas are, um, shifting your story, contaminating it and, uh, changing, uh, perspective in like small, subtle ways. Uh, that would be really cool to hear about. So, um, many ways to contact me. Obviously, you can uh, go through the website, uh, email Aaron at a grand uh, or even just give me a shout out on Instagram or Facebook or anything like that. Um, let's get a conversation going. But uh, until then, we'll uh, we'll talk later, and I'll uh, see you guys soon. <laughs>